You're listening to the Subrogation Support Network, a podcast from Atisant Wickard and Layer, America's subrogation law firm. With dissemination of new developments and changes in subrogation law, as well as emerging trends and best practices. Here's your host, Ashton Kirsch. Hello, everybody, and thank you again for attending today's podcast. This is Ashton Kirsch, your host with the Subrogation Support Network podcast, sponsored and hosted by Matisse and Wickert and Lair, your subrogation choice. Uh, today, I'm honored to have uh, as our guest, attorney Stephen Smith. Uh, Steve is a partner with our law firm at Matisse and Wickert and Lair out of our Hartford, Wisconsin office, uh, actually right up the stairs from me. Hey, Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Ashton. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. So today we have a really interesting topic that's applicable to anybody who handles auto subrogation work. Uh, Recently, just uh, I believe it was last week. Last week, Steve? Yeah, yeah. Um, Actually, uh, 10 days ago. Uh, 10 days ago, Steve presented a fascinating seminar entitled Automobile Subrogation in All 50 States, uh, The View from 35,000 Feet. So most important question, why 35,000 feet, not 34,000? <laughs> well, we wanted to get high enough so you get a comprehensive look at, at all the different statutes and, and forums out there where, where the rules change. Uh, uh, no, we were going for a pawn on, on, on aircraft travel. Um, yeah, so, so tell me a bit about the presentation. Yeah, so it was a comprehensive look at all the different schemes out there uh, and how to deal with subrogating on automobile claims. And the point of the webinar, and I hope it came across if anyone has viewed it or is going to go back and view it, is to illustrate that there are so many different schemes out there uh, for some of these issues made whole, uh, common fund and economic loss doctrine and all these jurisdictions, how these doctrines are treated and, and utilized either to your advantage or disadvantage uh, varies greatly depending on where you're located. Yeah. And we have a pretty unique perspective on it, given the fact that our firm does 50 state segregation and a ton of auto work, but also uh, I'm sure most people listening in have uh, checked out our website and the charts we have, but we have all of these surveys on med pay reimbursement rules, statute limitations, 50 state surveys, which frankly can be the bane of most associates' existence for a period of time, uh, keeping these charts updated. But ultimately, these charts give us that, you know, 35,000 foot view, showing us kind of what we see in each state and how things differ. And it can really be fascinating to see how you could have one case, same exact facts, let's say medical payment reimbursement case in Arkansas, that's going to come out totally different from that case in maybe Alaska. So I understand that that's a lot of what you talked about, right, is here's some uh, concepts and here's how they differ and how that can impact segregation. Right, Steve? Exactly. And I think that's the use of a webinar like this, um, as well as our charts, which you just mentioned. You can look at these things and look at them comprehensively. And the advantage that gives you is you get to choose or at least argue for the position that's most advantageous for your claim. So while an accident, let's say, you know, hypothetically happened in Oklahoma, um, that doesn't necessarily mean everything pertaining to that loss happened in Oklahoma, where the policies were issued, where the drivers were from, where the vehicles were registered. And so when you have this comprehensive look, 
you start to ask the right questions and realize, well, maybe, you know, the law from a different jurisdiction is better for us. And maybe we can find a way to utilize that law here in, you know, whatever state you're dealing with, Oklahoma, like I said, for an example. Um, So I think that was the real goal we were going for. And I hope that came across in the webinar. I did. It was was an excellent webinar, by the way. Um, Is that webinar being posted through the firm? It is. Um, it should be up on the website very shortly. There's some post-production stuff that goes on here at MWL, but it'll be on the on the website shortly. And we will also be following it up with some of the specific states uh, that attendees asked about. So uh, more of a deep dive into some very nuanced and troublesome states. And again, you start to learn what questions to ask at the onset to maximize recovery potential. Right. So, I mean, there's these broad concepts, but I, I, I really appreciate what you go into regarding the conflict of law and choice of law analysis, which is kind of, it's really obscure and it's unique to a lot of adjusters when we're explaining this and saying, yeah, yeah, but I understand that the law may be rough for our claim given the law where the accident occurred, but there might be a way to argue applicability of another state's law through a choice of law, conflict of law analysis. And I know that a lot of these topics are those that can subject us to those advantages if you have counsel who really knows to look at this, right? Exactly. And and one of the topics we went into in perhaps more depth in the webinar and has this perhaps conflict of law advantageous track you can take if you know the differences, the made whole doctrine. Uh, It's one of the biggest obstacles to subrogation recovery, you know, all over the nation. So the thing about it is, is it's an equitable defense. And with that comes a lot of case law and common law uh, made up of when it applies, how it's utilized, how you challenge it, all those procedures, et cetera. That changes greatly by the forum. And some forums will look to another state for choice of law to determine if made whole even applies. So if you know about these differences, um, perhaps you can get a claim reimbursed because you're arguing made whole doesn't apply because, hey, you know, forum state where the accident occurred, you need to be looking to state B. And if you can convince a court of that, you can save a claim that was otherwise unrecoverable. And made whole can have a huge, when made whole rears its ugly head, it can have a huge impact on your case. Uh, I know, I mean, for example, layman's terms, for those of you listening that aren't familiar with made whole, it's basically the general idea that uh, the insurance carrier cannot subrogate until the insured has been made whole for all of their damages. Uh, my understanding of the really unique thing we see here is that every state does differ. Uh, we have states where uh, made whole is solely applicable to bodily injury, right, in the medical act aspect of it, meaning that you can't recover on a med pay claim until that insured is fully made whole for their medical benefits. Other states going into that deviate between whether it's economic, non-economic damages before you can subrogate. Uh, some states apply it to property damage where they have to be made whole on the PD claim as well. Um, other states even apply it on the loss of use where it even extends out from property damage to say that insured has to be made whole on their loss of use or downtime claim in the commercial auto, as- or auto aspect. So, I mean, it, it, it's really fascinating how once you dig into each state's rules and interpretation, especially regarding made whole, you know, and you're not only talking about just, you know, what's the majority rule, the minority rule. You're talking about majority rules within my majority rules within minority rules. I mean, it gets really complex and interesting. So, uh, yeah, anything else you want to add to the made whole side of it? 
Yeah, exactly. There, there are so many different paths you can go down. You talked about just the general definition. Um, the has the insured been fully compensated for the for the loss? Even that question, fully compensated. What does that term mean? It means a different thing depending on where you are located uh, as far as litigation. In some states, fully compensated means fully compensated, like like you just went through, Ash, and all those different types of damages. In other states, fully compensated in the context of made whole and precluding recovery means fully compensated for the benefits at issue, meaning if I if the policy at issue paid out BI and they've been fully compensated on BI and the remaining damages for the claimant are pain and suffering or loss of consortium, something outside the BI, it may depend on the jurisdiction on whether that insured has been quote unquote fully compensated. So yeah, there are so many different paths you can go down on the application and analysis of made whole uh, that it, it is interesting to to us who live in this world and even in and when it comes to procedurally improving up these cases uh when we talk about and we'll, we'll go into more detail on med pay pip claims in a second but let's apply it to the med i guess let's go right into it now that's one of the other topics i wanted to ask you about med pay clip clip med pay pip claims and reimbursement or subrogation every state's different we have a chart a 50 state survey on this but it depends not just on made whole which is applicable in many states related to med pay and pip claims but also procedurally, whether you have even a right to subrogate or a right to seek reimbursement. Uh, an example I deal with a ton is uh, I have a lot of clients who send us California medical payments reimbursement work. And California is super unique in that we have a right to seek reimbursement if the contract and the policy allows for it, but there's no right to subrogation. So we can't go against directly against that third party to recover. We can only seek reimbursement from our insured once they have recovered per the policy language. And that's subject to the made whole doctrine. And a lot of our conversations with plaintiff's attorneys and with the claimants directly is it's just about that. It's about, hey, how is made whole going to apply? And to make matters even more complex, we're not just talking about does made whole apply. We're talking about when it applies, what elements of damages, you know, not to get too wonky on it. But in California, there's the Quintana decision, which says that attorney's fees and that calculation doesn't apply towards the made whole analysis. It applies towards more of a common fund reduction. Um, but we did get a ton of back and forth in that, but every state, even how you would argue made whole differs. So it's, it's really a unique facet there. So next up, uh, let's talk a little bit more about that. The med pay and PIP claims. You know, I get questions almost every single day from clients inquiring into the right of to subrogate on these medical payments or PIP claims. You know, the state laws vary as we discussed with made whole as an example, uh, any good tips that you've come up with uh, for the insurance carriers who are trying to subrogate these medical benefits? Well, one of the first things you want to look at is what the jurisdiction is set up like. And by that, I mean, are they a no-fault state or really are they a non-no-fault state? In a no-fault state, the, the path to recovery may be subrogation, um, depending on what the statute involved says. It might also be priority against another insurer that's higher in the line of who should be first to pay. And and that's just as the name suggests, no fault. You're not ascribing fault to another driver. That said, almost every no-fault scheme out there is very complex. In fact, they all are. They're, they're all pretty complex. And they're 
all they all have rules on when subrogation is still allowed and and when it might not be. So you want to distinguish between non-no-fault and no-fault states. In a non-no-fault state, so a traditional tort state such as Wisconsin, uh, where Ashton and I are, are at right now, the, what you want to look at is the policy language. Because in some states, there's a right to segregation on the med pay, but only if the policy provides that right. And by the way, I, I should actually give a caveat right here, but I say that when I say that right, I should distinguish between a right of reimbursement and a right of subrogation because those two are two different things. And Ashton kind of just talked about that with California a little bit. Um, so that's what you want to know is what's the scheme of this forum? And then once you know the what's going on in the forum, what does that forum require? Does it require the contractual language? Does it honor just equitable subrogation where you don't even need policy language. Uh, so those are some of the first things you're going to be looking at. Yeah. Uh, Steve is a resident's no fault expert. So don't, uh, don't call me for questions on no fault rules. I mean, it's, uh, it's so uh, Steve, we could probably do a full six hour podcast on Michigan. No fault. I'd imagine. Right. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, often when we, we get a ton of questions about Michigan, no fault, rightfully so, because it's probably the most complex statutory scheme out there. And the historical and, background there on no fault is, is kind of fascinating how for years states were moving towards no fault regimes with the idea that it's more, you could say, efficient, utilitarian to have your carrier just pay for the benefits and not have to go against the at-fault party. But over the last you know 20 years or so, maybe even a bit longer, States have been fully moving away from that, where once it was almost getting to be a majority rule. Now we have just a few subsets of states with Florida recently making changes to do away with a lot of their no-fault provisions and still just a few left. But in those states where, you know, that's one tip number one uh, for all listeners is if it, you have a state where no-fault could be involved, uh, be very careful and call Steve. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the other thing I'd say is when it comes to no fault states, the residents, the resident plaintiff firms out there, uh, they seem to rely on a lot of generalized rules to the detriment of the unwary uh, adjuster or attorney on the other side who doesn't know the nuances of, of no fault. So, I, I, and I say this because we get so many questions. Hey, we heard this from plaintiff's counsel. Uh, you know, it doesn't jive with something you guys have put out there or, um, or something else I've been told. And the answer is usually, you know, you're getting told a rule by someone who has no incentive to give you the right rule or no incentive to tell you the rule that allows you to recover. I mean, this is always a game where there's only so much money in the pot to go around and, you know, every party wants to maximize their recovery. So, I guess the adage I always say is, is what you don't know can't help you. And if you don't know where recovery potential lies in, in these no-fault states, via priority, as I said before in Michigan, that's often the answer. Um, but if you don't know where these recovery rights exist, you're never going to be able to take advantage of them. Right. And auto claims are really unique in that obviously carriers who write auto policies, their vehicles are going to travel across state lines. They're going to be subject to even a small auto carrier to the rules and laws of numerous different states, which is very different from maybe a homeowner's carrier who can really specialize in the 
in the rules and regulations for an individual state. And I have a lot of carriers where we get tons of these questions, just like Steve said, where it's, hey, I uh, never had a Michigan case before, kind of walking through what's going on. Or they try to handle things the same way as they would handle a claim out of Wisconsin, as they would in Michigan, or maybe New York, New Jersey. Uh, things are very different. And that's kind of where this presentation keeps reminding me how important it is for those in the auto field to stay up to date with all these important concepts. Because maybe you haven't touched on it before, uh, but I would almost guarantee you that at some point you will as your vehicles and your insurance vehicles are traveling around the 50 states. Exactly. And I think another great example can be found in Michigan. Um, as you just said, Ashton, the, if you haven't had experience dealing with Michigan, you might take a Michigan file and go about it, you know, the way you do most other automobile accident claims. You're gathering uh, the medical documents, you're investigating liability potential and all that. Well, Michigan has, if priority recovery is something that's obtainable, it has a shorter limitations period, a one-year notice provision, uh, than the negligence two-year limitations period. So if you're going about business as usual in one of these atypical states, you may miss something that could either reduce or altogether bar recovery potential. Fascinating. Um Beautiful. Well, next up is I have this short list of different things you touched on that I really wanted to ask you a little bit more about. And the next one on my list is uh, common fund. Uh, similar to made whole in a way, uh, is that the common fund doctrine, which is really a doctrine that basically says that a litigant who creates, discovers, increases, or preserves a fund, which others also have a claim, is entitled to recover litigation costs and attorney's fees from that fund. Uh, this is basically an equitable doctrine to prevent unjust enrichment in, well, largely in our context, subrogation claims. Now, in your opinion, Steve, uh, how's common fund impacting the auto insurance industry and subrogation? Well, it has a it has a giant impact on the subrogation industry. I mean, essentially what the doctrine is saying is saying, hey, insurance attorney, you went out there and secured the, the recovery. Um, we should have to reimburse you and by we i mean insurance carriers should have to reimburse you if we recover on our subrogation interest it impacts the the industry because claims are going to be reduced by the applicable common fund rule for that jurisdiction and this is again as ashton said it's an equitable doctrine this is again where nuance points and perhaps maybe choice of law uh, and knowing the jurisdictions can be used to your advantage. Some jurisdictions do allow you to contract out of of the common fund reduction. Um, usually that's more applicable in ERISA claims, but it can be applicable at the insurance policy level with non-ERISA uh, policies. Right. So and for the record, this is primarily applicable to those medical payments and med pay PIP claims, right? Property damage side, it's not as common to see a common fund apply. It can be applied to both, but yes, I, I think you're correct that it's more often used on the medical BI side of things as opposed to property. So it's my understanding that the states also differ on how common fund is applied, not just whether it's applied. Um, some examples of that, at least as, as I recall from your presentation, uh, was the percentages, right? Is Are we talking about a one-third? Or are we talking about, is it whatever the attorney's charging? 
When you go out to some states, uh, western states, southern states, it's not uncommon to see a 40 or 50 percent contingency fee. Well, do we owe one third or do we owe that 40, 50 percent? And there's case on the different states that impact that. And we've argued both ways, depending on where we are. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, but Steve, I'd be curious to know, uh, do you have any tips or anything that you found in your handling and preparing for this presentation uh, to allow carriers to avoid having to uh, pay or apply the common fund doctrine? Yeah, Ashton, like you just said, it's going to vary depending on the jurisdiction involved, what percentage it is. But there are other variances as well. Uh, some jurisdictions allow the policy itself to contract around uh, the common fund doctrine. Uh, in other jurisdictions, it won't be applied if there's active participation by the insurance carrier. And what that means usually is active participation that assists with obtaining a recovery. And then the other, uh, the other place where the common fund might not apply, and this is I'm talking about the District of Columbia here, statutorily it doesn't apply if you intervene into a claim. Or, or at least it doesn't apply the same way. You get less of a reduction. So, yeah, you, there are ways to get around common fund if you know, again, the jurisdiction you're in and you start asking some of these questions at the onset. Uh, if we actively participate in the claim, will common fund apply? And, you know, that leads itself to a cost-effective analysis of itself, depending on the claim. Right, which can often justify bringing in counsel because you're saving that fee in those jurisdictions. Uh, we see that in the work comp context quite often, where active participation will cause us to not have to pay the you know, one-third of percentage attorney's fee, just like this context, where in doing so, you bring counsel in, and in a way, you're getting counsel for the same prices if you didn't have them. Uh, we're representing them. We're protecting your interests. We're going forward. Uh, so that's, an, that's a fascinating avenue. Uh, another thing I'd mention on that is it's really interesting, and I see this all the time negotiating with plaintiffs' attorneys on Common Fund, where they have spent the last two years just trying to negate our claim, fighting against us. And next thing you know, there's a recovery, and they say, hey, now you have to pay our portion of the fee. And they say, well, hold up. You know, we've been actively having to fight and participate because you are not going to preserve our lien. And that's one problem is a lot of our clients and a lot of carriers, they hear from a plaintiff's attorney and say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll protect your lien. We'll preserve. Next thing you know, they either gerrymander the settlement, they do something to negate our right to recovery, uh, which is why we oftentimes recommend that our clients do uh, definitely the work comp context, but also in the MedPay PIP claim arena, uh, intervene and retain counsel. Exactly, Ashton. And I think the, the other point to make here is none of these issues are really at play in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is, is if you're actively participating due to a concern on the common fund doctrine, what that will likely do is also help you when it comes to made whole, if that's an issue down the road. If you sit on the sidelines, you're uh, in a lot of jurisdictions, you're not going to be able to get around common fund. Uh, it's probably not doable. But the other thing you're not going to have is information on the actual damages sustained and be, be in the loop on discovery and settlement discussions because. If made holes an issue at the end of that claim, you're going to be kind of handcuffed on what evidence you have to say made hole doesn't apply or shouldn't apply because of you know whatever points you can make. But if you haven't been actively participating, uh, that argument is very hard to make, especially when it occurs, which is at the eleventh hour of a case resolving. 
Yeah, and at that point, you're just relying that you're forced to rely on plaintiffs' attorneys' allegations as to why they're not made whole, sitting there with very little information aside from your claim file. So, active participation gives you, you could say, the ammo to be able to fight that claim in the future. Exactly. Now, next up, another thing that has to be referenced is statute of limitations and the applicability to auto claims and how important this is. You know, most anybody listening to this podcast knows what a statute of limitation is, right? We all know as attorneys, attorney 101, the golden rule of any lawyer or law firm is never blow a statute. Always keep statute of limitations at the top of your mind because that is the one way to really take a case that's worth something and make it worth nothing. Um, During your presentation, you really gave some interesting examples of how the SOL can be different and dependent on the type of claim, damages you're seeking, states you're in. Huge variant. We have a chart on that, all 50 states. I use it 500 times a day. Uh, more like five, five or 10, but a ton. <laughs> um, so an example of that I think that you mentioned that's fascinating is Wisconsin, right? That's where we are. Wisconsin has rules where, you know, maybe a standard SOL is applicable for maybe four years, but it's two years and different states have different rules based on if it's auto or if it's actually, you know, just a standard tort claim. Um, I, I don't want to steal your thunder, but uh, walk me through that. Let me know if there's any unique states or unique things that you've seen uh, that could impact it. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. It, it depends on what the uh, damages involved are. That's one thing that can impact a limitations period. It depends on what the underlying damages, uh, not only the type they were, but what, what was going on in the accident, wrongful death claims for example, may have a varying uh, limitations period than an otherwise, you know, standard negligence claim. And then the other thing you want to be aware of are the different rights you're talking about. I touched on this briefly before, and I think I touched on a little bit in the webinar, but, you know, really there are two different rights at play here. There's the reimbursement right and the subrogation right. Your subrogation right, usually you're stepping into the shoes of the injured insured, and that's going to follow the negligence uh, statute of limitation, and you're going to follow that. When it comes to your right of reimbursement, that's that's a separate right in a lot of instances. And if there was a third party recovery and you can no longer sue the, the tortfeasor, there might be a breach of contract uh, claim to reco- for your right of reimbursement. And that'll have a different limitations period than the underlying tort. That said, Ashton's correct at the onset. The best strategy with limitations per- periods of limitation is to be ahead of them. And it's important to uh, be ahead of them for a lot of different reasons. One is just make sure you're complying with it. Two, uh, you get a lot of tools in discovery. When you, when you file suit, you get to issue discovery. Or excuse me, you get a lot of tools in litigation. And one of those is discovery. And so when you file suit, you get to issue this discovery and say, were there any other owners of the vehicle, any other drivers of the vehicle, you know, and maybe you get a response there where you, you realize, oh, wow, we needed to include a whole nother defendant because maybe they're vicariously liable or there's an agency relationship or something like that. If you're ahead of the limitations period, you can, you can do those things and make sure everyone's involved. If you're, you know, lagging a little bit, there are other tools to maybe salvage an otherwise non-recoverable claim, but it's definitely not the best position to be in. So what you're saying to everyone is don't wait until the day before the SOL to send us the case to file suit. Absolutely not. 
Yeah, that is correct. And I'm sure you and I have never said that to a client before. <laughs> no, yeah, we we've said it quite a few times. So we can we can still help, but there are just like Steve said, so many things uh, that can happen where we may not know all parties, right? Where if you send me the case right before, and we could find out there was another defendant that needed to be named, now we've waived our claim against them. So that's where so this is so important. And, you know, I was just thinking about it further. And for Wisconsin is the example I brought up before. Um, things you can, where you can really get stuck if you don't know the right, the answers to your questions, don't have the right resources, would be something in the context of Wisconsin is a different SOL for whether auto, it's applicable to auto or non-auto. Personal property in Wisconsin, if it's non-auto, it's just a six-year statute of limitations. Uh, if auto is related, it makes it a three-year SOL. Um, personal injury, it gets even more interesting. And I actually have litigated this issue a number of times where if it's a non-auto bodily injury, uh, just injury, it's, it's three years, right? Standard SOL, the same. Uh, however, if it's a death arising from a motor vehicle accident, that puts it to two years. So we get cases in Wisconsin, frankly, all the time from clients, either one cases where it's a personal, personal property, auto claim, four years in, they're looking and they think it's a six year SOL. Well, guess what? It's three years. Now you're out. Or pretty often, uh, we're living in cases on you know the death arising from an automobile accident. Um, it's actually the statute reads uh, involving motor vehicle, uh, and then we're stuck with the two year if it's a death claim and a work comp injury. And frankly, then we're arguing what is a death involving a motor vehicle? How is this applicable? What is a motor vehicle? If you slip and fell on the back of a tra- of a tractor trailer, the trailer there, is that an incident arising from a motor vehicle? So it gets really complex. And that's where, you know, having a good corral, a good team of attorneys to consult with is huge. And also, I encourage everyone, look at our website because that SOL chart is, I mean, it's killer. It's really good. It is. And as as much as I say that and you say that to uh, our listeners and clients, it, we're serious about it. I have all the charts on my bookmarks right in front of me right now, and I use them on a daily basis up and down the the automobile in all 50 states made whole common fund, economic loss, all of them. Um, they're so handy and they're so quick to get answers to these nuanced questions. Exactly. So next up, let's briefly touch on comparative fault. Um, really, this is probably, again, you know, one of the other more important topics you touched on and also super relevant right now after Florida's recent changes. Um, comparative fault rules vary state by state and the applicable laws often are going to dictate whether or not you even have a recovery. Um, I did a podcast just last week on this recent Florida legislation with uh, my partner, Elizabeth Hernandez, and we discussed uh, how Florida has recently changed from a pure comparative state uh, to one that follows a modified comparative 51% threshold rule. Uh, What that means is that once that legislative change came into effect, there were countless claims where the value just decreased, right? It wasn't worth as much. Uh, In Florida, you previously could have a case where our driver was maybe 80% at fault, but there's a defendant that was only partially liable. You could still recover the other 20% from that defendant. Now that's changed. The majority rule is kind of having this modified comparative bar, uh, but this is one of those things that you know truly can make or break your case, and it's on, on the substantive issues. So, Steve, can you give me a few examples uh, that you as you went through your presentation on how these things can impact cases? Uh, yeah, and I, I think we can stay right there in Florida. Like you just said, it changed drastically. And before that, so in the pure comparative negligence fault scheme, 
that was in effect, you know, you, you gave the example of that 80, 20, uh, liability distinction. Well, in that case, you still might want to go after the subrogation, even though your driver was 80% at fault because of the damages, you could have these, you know, huge damages on one end, which is different than fault. You know, it's not necessarily the person with the most fault has the most damages or anything like that. And, and, and so now those under the prior regime, you could bring those cases and maybe recover on those claims. Now you have to think, do I want to invest uh, in this case? And how do I approach it best? Because I have to meet a new threshold. I have to uh, get above that 51% bar uh, to make sure we can sustain our burden of liability at trial. And so that might mean a different approach to the case. It might mean different investigation needs to happen earlier. Uh, it, It might mean uh, your damages, you might need to take a better look at those. It, it could mean a lot of things for the claim. Absolutely. Um, and next up, I feel like we have to mention those, uh, the minority rule, or those states that have a, a pure contributory negligence rule. I mean, basically one of these states where it's a pure rule where some jurisdictions still say, if our insured is at fault at all, usually it's deemed more kind of like a 1% bar, though in practice it's it's not truly 1%. Um, but those are still states where we have carriers that will send us cases, kind of assuming they're used to the majority rule, modified comparative, and then we have to come forward and tell them, well, you know what? The reason you can't recover here is because despite the fact that the defendant was primarily responsible, even if 95% responsible, we had some contribution. And in those jurisdictions, there's simply no right to recover. Um, we come up with very creative arguments that we actually still are litigating a number of those. We're one of the it's my understanding, few firms that are pushing a lot of these cases in the pure pure contrib states. Um, but that gets unique as well. So that's obviously think about the profound difference as we're talking about 50 state, you know, deviations. So the differences between how laws supplied. Uh think about a pure comparative state versus a pure contrib state, right? The type of accidents that can be litigated and the percentage recovery, I mean, it's hugely different. It's from zero to a hundred percent. I mean, it's really wild when you think about it. Exactly. Same accident, you know, underlying fact pattern, and you put them in two different states. Your tools for recovery are different. The way you can go about that recovery is different. And what your ultimate recovery can be can also be different. And like I said before, these issues are not in a vacuum. Common fund, comparative fault, made whole, they all need to go into the analysis of what is an effective plan for subrogation recovery. Exactly. Uh, now, next up, and finally, the last topic I really wanted to ask you about is the idea of the economic loss doctrine, which is a very, I mean, uh, relatively complex topic, especially for maybe adjusters and attorneys as well who haven't been trained in ELD, but also known as ELD. In layman's terms, it's basically, basically it says that you can't recover in tort for damages solely to the property itself. Now, as an example, your car burns to the ground due to a defect in the alternator. Uh, ELD would arguably bar your tort claim if the vehicle was the only thing that was damaged. Uh, you'd still be left with, you know, warranty claims, implied express warranties and other possible actions. Uh, but the majority of your, the primary element and primary basis of your claim is gone. Now, this is hugely audible, applicable in the auto context. 
uh, where damage does often occur to that vehicle itself. Uh, anything interesting that you want to note on economic loss doctrine, Steve? Yeah, it, it is a doctrine where it's one of those things where you don't know about it until you run into it. And then when you run into it, it it's a little bit complex and you start to realize what it does and how it applies. Uh, in the context of automobile subrogation, the, the main place you see uh, economic loss doctrine is uh, actions against either a garage or the manufacturer for some sort of product defect. Um, that's usually where I see see it applied or, or set out there. It does limit your damages to the damages of the product at issue. So in automobile subrogation, we're talking about the automobile. Uh, it can get very nuanced on whether you're talking about a component part versus the vehicle as a whole, uh, depending on you know servicing that occurred and, and what have you. It's another one of these doctrines, though, that you want to be aware of. And if your counsel is aware of them, they'll know, like Ashton said a, a moment ago, the rights are perhaps different when you have the economic laws doctrine in play. You may not, may not be able to step into the shoes of the insured and bring a subrogation claim, but you may be able to step into their shoes and bring a breach of warranty claim, a breach of contract claim, some sort of uh, statutory uh, lemon law claim, something like that. So. It's important to know what it is and how to react if you're faced with it. Uh, again, to make sure you're maximizing recovery potential. That's the truth. Uh, th- those are the main topics. I mean, obviously, this is a lot of complex stuff. So I'm assuming most listeners are going to have more questions than they came in with. Uh, and the goal of this has really been to just get people thinking, get people thinking about the importance of understanding uh, conflicts of law and the different laws in different states. Uh, As discussed, this was sold as a 35,000 feet overview. Um, And I think that you did a great job in the presentation doing so. I'd encourage everyone to jump on. You know, one thing that I I do want to end with something more broadly applicable. And it's the idea that, you know, we talk about all these these issues and we need to remember that this doesn't just impact knowing the law. It impacts really how you're going to negotiate the claim as well. Uh, you know, I train on negotiations. I actually have a seminar that I do for two hours on auto segregation negotiation. And, you know, one thing we talk about is early on, figure out what your hurdles are, what your issues are, be it maybe we have made whole or play. Maybe we have a common fund reduction at some point, you know, in figuring out what exactly it is, what is our legal basis, and then building our negotiations from there, uh, figuring out what we have and then trying to maximize recoveries. Um, you know, another important thing for any auto claim that I always like to just push on all of the adjusters that I train is really the idea that our job as uh, subrogation specialists, adjusters, attorneys, it, we are on the plaintiff side, right? You know, while I'm a, I am a plaintiff's attorney, I'll never be chasing an ambulance or putting my face on a billboard on the side of the highway. Uh, Steve might put in a joke about, you know, despite my maybe wanting to do that. Um <laughs> I won't. Um, but ultimately, we need to put on that plaintiff's hat when we're handling especially auto cases, auto properties specifically, where we are actually pursuing that case and we're making our arguments. We're building narratives. We're telling stories and we're creating recoveries. So we talked about uh, fault regimes and whether it's pure comparative, contributory negligence, whatever it is, figuring out what we have to argue there and then building forward to create the right story, the right narrative to have a recovery. Um, an example I always think of in my mind was a case I handled several years ago. All we know, we get a case. 
going down the highway, dark nights, no lights. Uh, we we just know this. We know based on the police report, our commercial semi-tractor trailer slammed into the back, rear-ended a cement truck, right? My client shut the case down and said, well, rear-end collision, obviously no liability. They're, uh, you know, without digging deeper, they realize, okay, it's a rear-end, no subrogation. So I always use this as an example, telling clients, it's not, it is never a no subrogation just because of something like a rear-end, right? We've recovered millions of dollars on rear-end collisions. But in these cases, we dig deeper. We looked into this one. We got uh, photographs from the accident uh, on request from the police department. And we found out, you know what? That uh, concrete truck, that cement truck, they had concrete and cement just caked all over the back of the windows, back of all of the lights. So when the brakes were hit, you can never see it. So my guys driving down the highway in their at speed limit, in front of them is a very slow-moving cement truck. No lights, no brake lights, nothing because they had negligently not maintained that property, and we struck them. So even though it was a rear-end collision, we immediately got 100% recovery there because we were able to dig deeper, get creative. And that's why on these auto claims, one, obviously, know the law is huge. Know how to use different legal input be a conflict analysis, whatever it is, the various uh, variations of state laws uh, to your advantage by being the best when it comes to knowing the law. But also focusing on how do you negotiate this by just working harder, getting creative and facilitating segregation recoveries. And, you know, I use that little prompt as, uh, you know, our next webinar is going to be on, well, next or the one after that on segregation negotiations in the auto context. Uh, And I think that that's a good segue into that. So really, that's what I have today. And I want to thank Steve. Steve, is there anything else that you want to add before we jump off? No, except to reiterate, uh, the charts are a great source uh, for everyone to use. I also heard from our marketing uh, director as this podcast is going on, the the 50-state webinar is up uh, on our site now. So please be sure to check that out if you haven't already. And like I said, we're going to also be announcing a state-specific one to uh, dive into, like I said, a, a troublesome or nuanced state that a lot of adjusters are having issues with. So I look forward to doing that. Ashton's going to give an awesome uh, presentation on negotiation, and, and I hope these tools are helpful to everyone who listens. Absolutely. And I would encourage everyone to jump on, listen to Steve's, uh, the current seminar that was posted, but also these state-specific ones, because as I'm sure you can understand, having listened to this podcast, uh, there's a lot of topics here and a lot of concepts when we apply it broadly at 35,000 feet. Um, (laughs) When we start going more uh, into the minute details, into the individual states, you know, that's really where these, uh, you know, these differences and these deviations, uh, you know, show themselves. So I appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure, Steve. We'll have to do it again soon, maybe on some of these state-specific ones. Um, That's what we have. Signing off, this is Ashton Kirsch, your host with the Subrogation Support Network podcast. Until next week, thank you.